today's word comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 38. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 38. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandal, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sore sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. This is the Lord of, Lord of God. All right. Well, I want to start by reading a passage uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is really my hope and my prayer for our time together this morning. And first of all, just thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here uh, to get to join you guys on today, the Lord's Day. So this is my prayer uh, for our time together today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you want to follow along. This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that is, that is my hope and prayer today, that you would not hear uh, the words of my mouth, but that you would hear the words of life uh, from Christ who is crucified on your behalf. Uh, and my prayer is that he will speak in through and even despite me this morning. So with that in mind, uh, let me pray and then we can jump into this text together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you that you first made us to be in relationship with you, uh, our God and our Father. But Lord, you also made us to be in community, in relationship with one another so that together we can come and worship you and live our lives for you. Lord, I thank you for that opportunity today uh, to worship together with brothers and sisters in the faith and to be fed by you as you uh, are here with us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do just that, that you would speak to us through your word, that you tell us is living and active, that it does not return void. And so, Lord, we claim all these promises today and pray this all in the matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So I don't know about you guys, but one of my biggest fears in life, we're kind of jumping right in here. Um, my biggest fear is basically of being found out as incompetent. 
uh, is being exposed as a failure and for everybody to know it and think that I'm a failure. And ironically, there were countless times when I was preparing this sermon that I realized I found myself being motivated out of a fear of that very thing, a fear of failure. Even to you, a room full of people I've never met before, and who knows, hopefully we'll see each other again soon, but this could be just a, a one and done thing and I'll never see you again, but I still found in myself the desire, I wanna show you that I'm good at what I do. I wanna impress you. And not just that, I, I realized I was trying to prove that to myself as well. And so the nightmare scenario, therefore, would be for me to get up here and to say something completely incoherent, uh, confusing, or worse, just wrong. Or in other words, for me to get up here and fail in front of you. But also, while preparing this, I realized that I'm way more afraid or way more often afraid of that kind of failure, a failure of ability or performance, than I am of a failure of character, a sinful failure, a failure to love, a failure to live as Christ has commanded us. And if you're anything like me, if you can relate to any of that, which I hope that you can, because uh, that would make me feel a little bit better. Um, but I don't know if you've ever thought, I'm so glad I wasn't alive when the Bible was being written so that it couldn't be written about me and my failures. Because we have a lot of those in scripture. There are a lot of people that did a lot of things that we still talk about thousands of years later. And for example, today we're talking about Peter. Peter was there and everybody now knows about Peter's colossal failures. And so today we're gonna to be looking at this passage where Peter hasn't failed yet, but Jesus is telling him, Peter, you are going to fail. And Peter categorically denies that that could ever happen. He says, no way, there's no chance, not me. Do you know who I am? Yet, I think many of us know how that story ends. And I, I don't know how to rank failures, but I think Peter's has to be up there with some of the worst. He was a leader among the disciples. Um, he boasted in this passage that he would go to prison and even death in the name of Christ. And then literally just hours later, he denies that he even knows him. This is not your average, everyday sort of failure. And again, here we are talking about it 2,000 years later. Can you imagine if this was your story? If we were talking about Ben Melcher's failure 2,000 years from now, like that would be pretty humiliating, right? How exposed might you feel if that were your story? Well, I've got some good news and some bad news for you. And the bad news is that whether or not you're willing to admit it, Peter's story of repeated failures is probably much more similar to your own than you may be willing to think. But the good news is, do you know who I can guarantee you is glad that we're still talking about this story two millennia later? It's Peter. So how could that be? How could Peter, who, again, just hours later, is so ashamed of his failure that when Jesus looks at him, he turns his face away, runs out, and weeps because he's so ashamed of what he's done. So how could this guy who couldn't even bear to look Jesus in the eyes come to be glad that we, the church, would still be talking about that story 2,000 years later? 
And what I'm going to argue today, what I'm going to, to take a look at, is that I think the only way that that could have happened is by grace, is that Jesus' experience, or Peter's experience through his failure and Jesus' response to that is the only reason that Peter could now feel the way that he does about this. And so it's that response of Jesus's that we're going to be looking at today. And so there are three things we're going to be looking at in terms of this response. First is that Jesus prays for your faith in your failure. He pays for your failure. And finally, he produces fruit through your failure. So he prays, he pays, and he produces. Okay? So first, Jesus prays for your faith. If you look at the first four verses or so, verses 31 to 34, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So if you read uh, the context of this passage, which is always a good idea if you're, you're looking at a smaller section, uh, this passage, chapter 22, starts with a pretty dark story where it says that Satan entered into Judas. And then we know the story that happens after there where Jesus, Judas betrays Jesus. And Jesus knows this. None of this is a surprise to him. So he knows that Satan is at work. But the disciples don't. They don't know this yet. And here Jesus comes to tell them, hey, guys, Satan has asked for your souls. He has asked to sift you like wheat. And ironically, again, if you look at the context, this comes right after the disciples are debating who is the greatest of them all. It's just, I think, a little, a little ironic. Um, but what's interesting here is if you, you look at the original Greek, it says that Jesus is talking to Peter, but he uses the plural you. Where I'm from, we say y'all. Um, but for others of you, maybe you guys, if you're from Pittsburgh, it's yens, whatever it may be, it is you all. Uh, it's a plural you. So he's talking specifically to Peter, but he's talking to all of the disciples at the same time because Satan has asked for all of them. But we see that Jesus prays for Peter specifically, and he prays that his faith would not fail. So why do you think Jesus would only address Peter if Satan is after all of them? Is it maybe because Peter was the strongest of all the disciples, that he was the leading disciple, he was the first one that Jesus called to be a disciple, he was the first one that we see in Scripture recognize Jesus as the Messiah? So is it because Peter's the strongest, he's kind of the figurehead? Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's because Peter's actually the weakest and was the most prone to fail because of his arrogance. But whatever the reason may be, I think it's interesting to look at Peter's response. In verse 33, he says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So in other words, he's like, not me. Surely not me. Like, I'm Peter. I will do whatever it takes to follow you. And so perhaps you have been sitting here this afternoon so far thinking, you know what, I don't really think I'm that much of a failure. In fact, I'm doing pretty well for myself. Thank you very much. 
let me tell you this. That is exactly where Satan wants you to be. He wants you to think that you've got it all under control, that surely not I. I'm untouchable. I've got my life figured out. I read my Bible. I go to church. I'm untouchable. But what I think is actually true, and Scripture says this all over the place, is that the things that hinder us the most from our relationship to Christ are actually our perceived strengths and not our weaknesses. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And I think the opposite is true as well. When I think I'm strong, I'm actually real dangerously weak. So friends, where do you think you're untouchable? Where do you think that Satan could never get to you? But let me tell you this. He is ravenous for your soul. And the worst thing that you can do is think that you are okay because you've got it figured out and you've got everything under control. And again, the Bible is full of examples of the danger of that attitude. Just look at David in Bathsheba, a man after God's own heart. Surely he, if anybody, was untouchable, right? Or look at Moses when he was leading God's people. He decided, you know what? I'm tired of listening to the Lord. I'm going to do this my way, and I'm going to strike this rock to give us water. There are examples all throughout Scripture. And we don't have to just look to Scripture, too. Sadly, we get reminded of this all the time in the news. I mean, just think a couple years ago, right after Ravi Zacharias died, this man who did so much good for the kingdom, turns out he had a really broken story. So if these people who have done unimaginable good for the kingdom are susceptible, then who are we to think that we're any better? So these stories show us that you can be as close as possible to Jesus, but that doesn't stop Satan. It doesn't stop him from trying to get what he thinks is his. But even more important than Peter's response to this is Jesus' response to this. So notice what Jesus both did and even more so what he didn't pray for in this passage. He didn't pray that Peter simply wouldn't fail, that he'd be like strong enough to overcome temptation. He didn't pray that he wouldn't be tempted in the first place. Instead, he simply prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. When he failed, he prayed that his faith would not. Charles Spurgeon once said about this passage that the point of Satan's chief attack on a believer is his faith. We are engrafted into Christ by faith, and faith is the point of contact between the believing soul and the living Christ. If, therefore, Satan could manage to cut through the graft just there, then he would defeat the Savior's work most completely. But, guys, Jesus didn't just pray this for Peter. He prayed this for all the disciples, and he is still praying it for each of us today. Romans 8.34 tells us that Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding or praying for us. So he is praying for you, even now. He's praying that in your anxiety, that in your fear and your restlessness, you won't stop trusting in his goodness. 
He's praying about your broken relationships, that in your estrangement, you won't stop trusting in his love for you. He's praying about your wandering into sin, that you will never stop trusting his forgiveness, but instead will desire the better way that he offers because of it. Jesus prays for everything we need. And we can rest assured that these prayers are answered. And so our, our faith is sustained by Jesus' prayers. But that faith would not exist, and those prayers would not hold the same power apart from Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and his defeat of sin and death. And so that leads me to my second point, which is that Jesus pays for our failures. If you look at verses 35 to 38, they may seem a little strange. It seems like a little bit of a, an about-face change in the conversation kind of abruptly. Uh, he says, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes, And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here, or sorry. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. All right, so this seems a little, little strange going from this first section talking about Peter's impending failure and then jumping to knapsacks and money bags and swords and all these kind of things. But if you're, you're familiar with the Gospels, um, in particular Luke, it may sound a little familiar because Jesus gave similar instructions way back in chapter 9 where he told them to go out, but he said something different. Does anybody remember? He says, take nothing with you because everything that you need will be provided to you. But this time he's saying, take several things with you. So what, why the swords this time in particular? This doesn't really sound like anything else Jesus has said. So when a, when a passage is unclear, I think the best thing that we can do is let Scripture interpret Scripture, which means let's look at the rest of it and see what it speaks to in this passage, and that helps us understand it a little bit more. And if you read through the rest of the New Testament, you'll see that there is no violence done by God's people. There is lots and lots of violence done to them, but it is never done by them. But you may also know what just happens a few hours later is that Peter takes a sword and he does something. Um, that later that night when Judas betrays Jesus and the soldiers come to arrest him, Peter chops the ear off of one of the soldiers. And you know what? I bet Peter was thinking in the back of his head, I'm going to show Jesus. Like, there's no way I'm going to deny him. I'll show him right here and now. I'm going to take this sword. And I don't know what he was trying to do. If he's trying to chop the guy's head off or something, he just had really bad aim. But I don't know why the ear. Um, it's kind of funny. But I, I bet Peter was thinking, I'm going to show Jesus what's really up. But right after Peter cuts off the soldier's ear, Jesus rebukes him and then heals the man. And so Peter chose the wrong weapon for that fight. 
He chose a literal sword, relying on his own doing instead of trusting in the strength of his Savior, who is standing right there, gentle and lowly, peacefully, showcasing his strength through that, through his humility and gentleness. And for his whole time on earth, Jesus made it abundantly clear that his kingdom would not come through force or violence. It wouldn't come against other humans or against institutions. He did not come to overthrow Rome. That's not what his kingdom is about. So Jesus, this night, was speaking metaphorically to his disciples. He was, to tell, he was telling them, this time is going to be different. Last time I was with you, there wasn't this great turmoil and strife happening yet. This time it's going to be different, and you're going to experience opposition. But the disciples clearly take it quite literally, as we see from Peter. But even right here, they say, look, we have two swords. Okay, cool. Um, to which Jesus says, that's enough. Do you think that he's saying those two swords are enough for all of you for the rest of your time working for my kingdom here on earth? I don't think so. That would be like saying to somebody, hey, I want you to go find a friend and get two pistols and go take over Area 51 or Fort Knox, and that'll be enough, just those two weapons. But instead, what he's saying is, that's enough. No more talk of swords. You're completely missing the point. And here's the point that they missed. Right before they say that, Jesus says, I have come to do something. He says, I have come to die and be counted among the transgressors, counted among the sinners. And so Jesus was saying that while his kingdom does not come with violence against other people or against institutions, it would come with violence. But it would be the violence of the cross, violence on Jesus. This passage comes from Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so, friends, Jesus, our spotless lamb, died a sinner's death, crucified in between two thieves. But this doesn't just mean that he would be called a sinner. It means much, much more than that. It means that he actually took upon himself all of our sin and died the death that we deserved. In order to satisfy God's justice and his wrath on our failures, Jesus died as a liar, as a thief, as an adulterer, as a lazy, prideful sinner. He who had no sin became sin. But do you know what this passage doesn't say? It doesn't say that those who are united to Christ are numbered with the sinners. Because Christ was instead of us. When we look to the cross, we see our Savior saying, I'm taking all of your failures. Everything and everywhere that you're inadequate, where you don't measure up to my standards, because you have all fallen short, I'm taking it upon myself so that you won't be counted among the sinners. 
and you won't be counted among the failures. Instead, I'm going to call you friend. You will be counted as sons and daughters of the king, my co-heirs, my brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus calls us. And so it's on the cross where we see the one that never failed die for the failures. It's on the cross where Jesus paid the price that we all deserve so that you and I, by faith, can have access to a love that never fails. So, this sounds pretty great, right? Almost too good to be true. What do we do? What do we have to do to get that? To get that love that never fails? Jesus tells us one thing. Turn. Verse 32, Peter, when you turn, it's this language of repentance. It's turning away from something and instead to something. Turning away from yourself, from your failures, from your sins, to a Savior who never fails you. And when you turn, he tells Peter, strengthen the brothers. And so this, this leads me to my third and final point, that Jesus produces fruit through your failures. For a lot of us, after we fail, it can feel like the world is like coming crashing down around us. It feels like our life is over. There's no hope for the future that you've missed out on your one chance. But unlike us, Jesus has a vision for your future after failure. Failure isn't the end of the story with him. If you look at verse 33, Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter seems to almost get it here. He seems to recognize that following Jesus is going to be really costly. And it would require suffering at times. But the problem was his confidence was misplaced. It was in himself. It was a self-confidence instead of it being in Christ. But this isn't the end of Peter's story. One of the, the fun things about getting to speak at another church is you get to pick what you talk about. And as far as redemption stories go, which are always the best stories, it doesn't really get much better than Peter's. In a sweet irony, Peter does later become imprisoned and die for the sake of the gospel. But at that moment, he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready for that. So how did Peter become ready? This guy whose faith was so weak that he denies Jesus hours later to a girl, a slave girl, is the same one who would later be beaten within inches of his life, be imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, and then die, as church history tells us, crucified upside down. So what changed him? Was it some great piece of advice that Jesus gave him? Was it shame or guilt? Was it Jesus magically giving him courage, like the, the lion from Wizard of Oz? What changed him? It was the experience of Jesus' grace and forgiveness. Peter's failures brought him closer to Jesus than his successes ever could have. There's a, a pastor named Dallas Willard who once said that when Jesus knew Peter would deny him, he did not just fix him so that he wouldn't do that terrible thing. Surely he could have done that. But it would not have advanced Peter towards being the person he needed to become. 
So Jesus said to Peter, with sadness perhaps, but with great confidence in the Father, I have requested concerning you that your faith might not die. And when you have straightened up, uphold your brothers. And so it's this experience of Jesus' grace and forgiveness after failure that is so utterly life-changing. And friends, when you know this, you'll see that the one prerequisite for being a Christian is not convincing God or others or yourself that you're not a failure. It's seeing that you are a failure, but then resting in the promise that Jesus died for failures and that his love will never fail. And you must also know that no matter how many times you fail, when you are in Christ, he will still use you. That's what he does. He uses failures to advance his kingdom. How backwards is it that Peter, the one who denies Christ three times, would be the one that Jesus then calls to strengthen and lead his people in his absence, to build his church on this guy who just denied him publicly? And if you know the rest of Peter's story, I think a lot of us know um, the really sweet breakfast that happens on the beach after Jesus' resurrection where Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times, three denials, three questions. And then he says, feed my sheep. And then if we look at the book of Acts, we see in chapter 4 that Peter, after healing a man, is on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, which is made up of these same people who just months earlier sentenced Jesus to death. These are the same people. Not a new crowd, new town, new place, same people. Very different Peter. Acts chapter 12, Peter's imprisoned. And then again, as we said, church history tells us he died a martyr's death. People do not change like this. They do not change like this apart from the transforming power of God's grace. And God chose Peter not because of his strength, not because of his resume, his track record, whatever it was, not even despite his failures, but actually because of his failures. Peter was the one Christ chose to carry on his message of salvation and of grace and mercy because Peter was the one who had most directly experienced it. Jesus, uh, right before the Last Supper in the Gospel of John, talks about, it's a, a famous passage where he says that I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. And he says in the first two verses, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it, it may bear more fruit. And so the Lord prunes us through our failures because he wants us to bear more fruit. I have, I don't know if this is a good or bad thing, I've experienced this many times in my life through many, many failures, uh, but I vividly remember the very first time that I did. I am one of six kids, I'm from a big family, um, but I only have one sister, four brothers, one sister. And my sister and I are just about two years apart in age, um, but we're only one grade apart. And because of that, and because my sister had five brothers and no sisters, she was prone to hang out with guys 
in high school, and they just happened to be my friends, uh, which was okay. We butted heads a lot, so it was a little annoying to have her around a lot. But then it got really annoying when she started to date them, uh, because then suddenly I was much less interesting to both of them. And then inevitably, it would end badly, they would break up, and then things were awkward. And I was so annoyed by this, and it happened multiple times. And it continued into college, because we went to the same college. And there is one time that she dated this guy I'd been friends with for forever. They broke up, and we got into a fight. And I told her, I just wish you'd make your own friends. Like, why do you always just take my friends? Can I not just have my own people that you won't ruin this for me? And I saw the look in her face, just this like crestfallenness where tears welled up. And I could tell I just stuck the knife right into her heart. I basically told her, I, I don't want you in my life. Can I not just have my own life and you have your own? Stop being a part of everything that I do. Go away, basically. And I remember almost immediately after those words came out of my mouth, this feeling of deep conviction of what have I done? How could I say that to my own sister? And she being far more gracious and patient than I am, after I apologized, she said, I love you. I forgive you. I want you in my life. And by God's grace, you know, we, we butted heads for so long growing up, but now she's the one I'm closest to by far. And we talk all the time. And she's the one that I know I can always count on to be there when I need her to be, even though we're thousands of miles apart from now. Um, the Lord used my failure to bring about grapefruit. So friends, your failure is not final. God is in the business of restoring broken people. And no one knows how to say this better than the ones who've experienced it. And so for some of you this morning, you may still be sitting there thinking that you have no need for Jesus, that your life is pretty great. You've had a lot of successes thus far. But let me challenge you again with this. That's exactly where Satan wants you to be. To think that you've got everything under control. And guys, if these past two or three years haven't shown you that you can't control everything, I don't know what will. But what happens when the things that are going well start to crumble? When your startup fails, when your friend or your spouse or your child gets a cancer diagnosis, when you don't get into Stanford, whatever it may be, what will you do when things around you begin to fail? But there's grace for you in Christ Jesus, grace for all who come to him. And maybe you're starting to think about coming to him for the first time. If, that's, if that is you, then I urge you, throw yourself on him. Amen. Throw yourself upon his grace and mercy. And don't let Satan crush out even that tiniest sliver of faith. But for others of you, your spiritual life maybe has always been about performance that you, in fact, are here this afternoon because of that. That if I go to church, he'll love me more. If I give a little bit more money, he'll love me more. If I stop cheating on my tests, if I stop looking at those websites, if I start acting better, maybe then he'll love me more. 
But that's not how it works. Salvation is a free gift, but it is a gift paid for with a great price. And there's no way you can earn it. And for those of you who are in Christ, but maybe you're haunted by something in your past, some moment of great failure, maybe something you did or didn't do, whatever it may be, the cross wipes it out and Jesus redeems it. The cross says that the greatest failures and suffering could actually be a way for God to do something unimaginably good. Have you ever thought, because I can't think of any good reason for this horrible thing that just happened to happen, therefore there can't be any good reason for this horrible thing to have happened? Look at Ukraine or the number of school shootings we've had in the past couple months. Whatever it may be, those things feel impossible for anything good to come out of that. But imagine the people at the foot of the cross that Friday, 2,000 years ago, looking up at this Jesus whom they loved and followed and put all of their hope in, seeing him die the death he died. There's no way good can ever come from this. And yet that greatest moment of evil the world has ever seen, will ever seen, when we murdered our very own Lord and Savior, has become the greatest moment of good that the world has ever seen. And because of the cross, there is always hope, because Jesus has secured your future. And so if that is you, if you believe that to be true, then I want you to ask yourself this. What is the Father's posture towards me right now? What is he saying? If it is anything other than I love you, I'm pleased with you, you are mine and I am yours, then you don't yet understand the nature of God's mercy for failures. And so you can put down your performance because Jesus has already performed in your stead. You don't need to pretend that you're more spiritual than you are. You don't need to tell everyone how great you are. And you don't have to be afraid of failure because Jesus never fails you. The only thing you have to do is turn. Confess your failure and turn and see that you have immeasurable and unfailing love waiting for you in Christ Jesus and rejoice that he transforms your failures into fruit. So take heart. Jesus is praying for each of us right now that your faith in him, the savior of liars, adulterers, thieves, gossips, addicts, workaholics, the savior of failures will never fail. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that your love never fails. Lord, it is the only thing that we can count on in this world. And yet we so often look to other things to give us that security and hope and purpose. But Lord, they all leave us feeling hungrier and emptier than before. But Lord, we give you great praise and thanks that you offer redemption and grace and mercy to those who realize they need it. So Lord, would you humble us all today that we would throw ourselves at your feet and that you would offer us life and forgiveness and fullness that only you can offer. 
And Lord, we thank you that you aren't the savior of those who have it all together. But you're the savior of those that don't. And we pray this all in the matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen.